so excited uh, to have Stephen um, preaching this morning, to hearing from him what God has to say to us. So if you've got a Bible with you, uh, you can turn to James chapter 5. Uh, his text for today is James 5, 1 through 6. Uh, this is from the English Standard Version. This is also in your message map and will be on the screens uh, behind me as well. James 5, starting in verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Man, that's a tough passage. I think we need to pray uh, for Stephen and, and for us uh, as he comes to uh, deliver God's word to us. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word. Um, your word tells us that it is useful for teaching and correcting and rebuking and training in righteousness. And so this morning, Father, we look forward uh, to those things happening in our lives. Father, we pray for Stephen as he comes, as he delivers your word. Uh, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be in his mouth, directing his tongue. Uh, and Father, we pray for us that our hearts would be open, that our ears would be ready to hear truth and to take those truths and apply them to our lives. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy that is evident every day in our lives. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Kevin, for for reading and for those words. Um, hey, I've got to be honest when you, when I committed to preaching through James, I think I completely forgot that this passage was in it. Otherwise, I would have gone and preached Galatians because that would be uh, a little bit more simple. But uh, if you've watched television, if you've watched movies, if you've read novels, you are likely familiar with a character of some sort, an antagonist that has been corrupted by the greed of wealth. Right? Uh, I'll give you a pass. You can talk in church here in a minute. If you think of one better than what I have here, you can, you know, whisper it to your neighbor or find me in the lobby afterwards. Uh, but I just Googled uh, characters motivated by greed and wealth. Right, and, and I got a, a pretty long list pretty quickly. Right, some of the the ones that came up that I thought you might know would be Hans Gruber in the movie Die Hard. Right, motivated by money. Or maybe uh, if you're a teeny bopper television show watcher, uh, you think about w Ward and Rafe Cameron in the TV show Outer Banks and how the desire for money and wealth just ripped the whole family apart, right? Or, or maybe uh, on a more simplistic level, you think about Mr. Krabs in the cartoon for teenagers, SpongeBob, right? And his desire to always just kind of get more money. And, and he's a little bit of a cheap character, as I understand, right? Or, or maybe the most infamous one would be like a Dr. Evil, right? In the Austin Powers movie, where he just always wants more money and it consumes him. 
uh, our, our kids pastor, Will Washburn, gave me Count Olaf, right? If you've seen the series of unfortunate events, uh, and his character is um, depraved by this desire for more money, more, more, more wealth. And we even see this in Christmas movies, right? The most happiest time of the year. We see this in Henry Potter in the Christmas classic, It's a Wonderful Life, and how things get so messed up because of his desire for wealth. We see Ebenezer Scrooge, right, in the Muppets Christmas Carol, being cheap towards people because of his desire for wealth. And we could go on and on, and I'm sure that you have a list as well, of, of characters that are corrupted for a desire for wealth. And while each of these characters are, are not real, they do issue a lighthearted, but, but nonetheless truthful warning about the misuse of money and the way that money can grip our hearts. And so I've titled the message today, Warnings About Wealth, because that's exactly what James is giving us today, is he's giving us warnings about wealth. Now, it's important as we go through this passage that we view it in context with the last five verses of uh, chapter four, which we looked at last week if you were here. But in those verses, James is rebuking Christians who were merchants in the church that we're establishing plans in order to maximize profitability without considering the will of God, right? That's what we looked at last week. That's what's coming, coming out of coming into this is that they had become so caught up in the rat race of making money and making plans that they forgot about the fragility of this life in light of eternity. And it's right on the heels of that passage that we have this James 5, 1 through 6, that we'll look at today. And what I need you to hear from the onset of this passage from, is that nowhere in the Bible do we see having money as being sinful. Nowhere in the Bible does it say having money or wealth is sinful. I need you to hear that. Right? It's important to identify sin in our lives. The Holy Spirit helps show us our sin. But it's also really important that we never identify something as sinful that God does not identify as sinful, right? That, that we are bound within God's moral standard, but that we should never go beyond God's moral standard. And so we don't want to call something sinful that God doesn't call sinful, I remember coming home from Romania. I was there for seven months working at an orphanage and I come, come home on December 23rd. And for about a month of all of December and January, I felt this overwhelming guilt because I had just left these orphans in Romania and I knew how little they had. And I came right back into America right during Christmas time and was just bombarded, right, with gifts and stuff and stuff, and then we get stuff at Christmas, and then after Christmas, we go buy more stuff, and how guilty I felt, right? And, and I had to work through that, but it was such a good lesson that, that we shouldn't feel guilty for God's blessings in our lives. That's not the point of this, right? First Timothy 6.10, Paul, Paul tells Timothy that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And, and we need to be cautious that we don't eliminate those words, the love of and act as if money is the root of all evil, right? Because language matters. Accuracy matters. Every word in scripture matters. And saying that the love of money is the root of all evil is very different from saying that having money is evil. 
So, so please hear me today that, that this is not an indiscriminate attack on wealth that James is giving to us. It's important to understand James is not rebuking anyone for having wealth. He can't be, right? It, it wouldn't make sense considering the wealth of so many godly men in scripture, right? Abraham, incredibly wealthy. Job, David, Philemon, we see later Lydia is a woman with great wealth, godly woman. So it can't be about just the sin of having things. We could go on and on about revered men and Christian women in the faith that had a lot of money. It's not about that. James is not attacking wealth, but the misuse of wealth is the attack here. That's the caution Again, this passage is not an indiscriminate attack on wealth. It's how we perceive it. It's our perspective on wealth. It's how we use wealth. But it is a harsh passage. In fact, it's the harshest language in all of James. It's the most severe rebuke that we see in scripture. And, and that harshness, it tells us something. It tells us that really who James is addressing here is unbelievers. If you look at the language in the passage, it's, it's likely people who don't have any relationship with Jesus, but are casually involved in the church, right? They're coming and going, but these people are not believers. Kent Hughes expounds this. James is likely writing to non-believing countrymen who were exploiting the poor, many of whom were in the church. Likely wealthy farmers who owned large tracts of land and we're squeezing everyone and everything for profit. Think about the language here, like we see in, in James 5.1. It says, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Later in James 5.3, just a couple verses, it says, uh, James is declaring that wealth will be the evidence against them and it will eat your flesh like fire. Right? These phrases don't indicate any reason to believe that this is a rebuke to Christians that are under the umbrella of grace, right? This is language condemning unbelievers for judgment that will one day come. So before we go any further, I just want to say, if you're not a, a professing believer in here, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, this harsh language is the judgment that comes. But know today, you can leave this room not under judgment, but under grace. That there is nobody in here that has out the gospel or the cross. That we have a prayer room to my right and to your left. And as soon as I'm done preaching, you can go there and say, hey, I think this is me. I don't want to be under judgment. What do I have to do? And today you can leave here. Not under judgment, but with hope. However, just because this passage is, is a rebuke of unbelievers, it doesn't mean, church, that we can't benefit from studying it, right? So you can't say, well, I'm a believer. I'm going to check out, right? James isn't talking to me. I think, I think that while James is actually addressing the lifestyle of unbelievers, I think that he's primarily thinking of Christians when he writes this. Right, I mean, think about the context here. Think about what's going on. He just got done, as we talked about in chapter four, rebuking them for the merchants becoming over, uh, overly consumed with making a profit, 
and overly consumed with making money. And he knew that the lure of the world was prevalent in their lives. So what does he do? He takes these Christians that he's just rebuked for making plans without thinking about the will of God. And then he comes over here and he rebukes the unbeliever in the coming judgment. And I believe that is mostly for the benefit of the Christian. I think it's because James understood that the natural human tendency, even and especially for Christians, is to envy wealth. See, James understood that this envy left unchecked would potentially lead believers astray. And so this rebuke that he's giving to unbelievers, I think is meant to warn Christians of the dangers of wealth. It's no different for us, right? We, we all live in this temptation of dreaming of and being drawn into the lifestyle of the rich and famous. And we see this incredibly young, right? We, we see our teenagers, if I can only have this, I'd be happy, right? And, and looking at social media profiles that are flaunting all of their stuff and their nice cars and their fancy clothes and their new purses and their shoe collection. And if I could only have that and how easy it is to get drawn into that. James knows the temptations around us to desire more and more and more and for wealth to begin gripping our hearts. So I really believe that this rebuke is meant to benefit the believers. It's meant to show them, hey, it's not all that it's cracked up to be. Don't let the lure of the lifestyle of the rich and famous grab a hold of your heart. It's meant to give us comfort, but it's meant to rescue us from this seductive idea that wealth will make you happy. And that is a seductive idea that we all to varying degrees have succumbed to, right? That wealth will bring you comfort. It'll give you status and that your identity is tethered to your wealth. Those are all things that we're tempted to believe. And James is protecting us from those things today. I think he aims for Christians to benefit from this rebuke. First and foremost, by reminding us that those who lie and steal and cheat to get wealthy, or even those who idolize wealth and misappropriate wealth, judgment will come. Nobody gets away with anything. Every sin is paid for either on the cross of Christ or in eternal judgment. No economic injustice goes unpunished. But I think it would also help the Christians become patient with, with the suffering that they were experiencing underneath economic injustice, right? Knowing that they don't get away with anything. <clears throat> As James continues through the passage, he gives us four indictments of these wealthy unbelievers, four accusations against them, four, four things that he says, specifically you've done these four things in your misuse of wealth. <clears throat> Again, remember he's talking to unbelievers as he makes these indictments and these accusations. But what I wanna do is I wanna go through these four accusations. And for every accusation that James makes, for every indictment that he makes against an unbeliever, <clears throat> I wanna use a parallel warning for the believer, okay? So you're gonna get an, an indictment and then a warning, an indictment and then a warning. We'll do all four and we'll go through these somewhat quickly, okay? <clears throat> 
And so that's going to be kind of the, the, the message. And, and while we've made it abundantly clear that there's absolutely nothing wrong with wealth itself, I do want to point out that the Bible does indicate higher levels of wealth, they do serve as a spiritual handicap. Right? We see this in the story of the rich young ruler who's sorrowful, unable to see the glory of Jesus because he was blinded by his idolatry of wealth. So I do want to be clear, wealth itself is not sinful, but wealth is dangerous. And we all need to recognize that. I often say, I know the brokenness in my own heart. So I don't think God will ever allow me to be rich because he knows it would ruin me. I love stuff. I love nice stuff too. God knows me too good to let me ever be really wealthy because it's dangerous. Not all of us can handle it. So hear these warnings today, okay? The first indictment is this. The indictment is that they were hoarding wealth. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and your corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. So the accusation here is that they've disproportionately stored up treasure for themselves, right? Uh, the, The agrarian world had three sources of wealth, right? They had harvested grain, they had clothing, And then they had precious metals and or jewels. James addresses all three here. He says, listen, your harvest has gone bad. You've had so much stored up, it's rotted. It's no good to you anymore. Your clothes, the symbol of your status and wealth, they've had holes eaten in them by moths. And while James understands that gold and silver, they don't actually corrode, He uses this language that points out even your most dependable and surest source of wealth that will always last, will only last to testify against you on the day of judgment. The thing that won't go away will be around to testify against you. So here's the warning here behind this indictment. The warning is this, wealth can bring misplacement of security. Wealth can bring misplacement of security. Listen, I I don't intend on telling you when savings becomes hoarding. I don't, I don't know. I couldn't tell you if I tried. There's some, there's some incredibly godly financial advisors in Macon that could help you think through that from a godly perspective. And what does it mean to plan for the future and be responsible without crossing that line of hoarding? And I think that's important. But more importantly, you all as believers have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, right? It's the Holy Spirit's job is to convict us and help us show these things in our lives. When does too much savings become hoarding? That's something that the Spirit can help you with. But I can tell you this, that when you begin looking into an investment or a savings account for comfort on bad days, then you have crossed into dangerous spiritual territory. And I just want to say that I get it. I sleep better when money is good. And I sleep way less when money is bad. I get it. But if we aren't careful, our sentiment will, lo- will no longer be as Psalm 46 declares. God is our refuge 
and our strength. But instead, if we're being honest, what we might would proclaim is my wealth, is my refuge and my strength, my cushion in my savings, my backup funds, all the money I've got stashed away. That's really where I go for my comfort and my refuge when everything else gets a little bit shaky. Psalm 4.8 declares this. I love this psalm. I will lie down and sleep in peace. For you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. See, security and wealth comes and goes like the wind, but trust in the Lord is a safe investment. And what this psalm tells us is that you don't have to have this amount in your savings to sleep with peace. You don't have to have this many investments and this much equity to sleep in peace. It's good news for some of us, isn't it? The second indictment is this. Cheating workers, James 5, 4. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. When you consider the circumstances here, there's two heinous crimes. One is that the laborers were likely living hand to mouth. So these people that worked for these wealthy farmers and then didn't get paid are living hand to mouth, which means a day without wages is a day without food. The second heinous part about this though is that it's happening in a time where the delayed payment would have been when these farmers were most wealthy right after the crops had been harvested. It's when their barns were most full of grain, their barrels were most full of wine, their tables were most full of food. Right, you can imagine the injustice of the wealthy farmers sitting at the table just overly stuffed and full of food. Meanwhile, the worker who did the work and didn't get his fair wages is in a dark, cold room with his family hungry, crying out to the Lord. And it says the cries of those people will testify against the wealthy farmer. So here's our warning Wealth can bring mistreatment of others. I think we all should ask ourselves, are there voices calling out to God now for which we are guilty of? Have we prioritized man, money over man? Have we ever cheated or underpaid or failed to pay anyone who's worked for us? Have we cut corners on services for our own gain at the detriment of someone else? These are important questions to ask, but, but it's not just that simple. There's also a social element of this, right? Is, is if we mistreated others in a social way because of our perceived value of wealth, right? Maybe it's pursuing one friendship while denying another friendship based on the social status of someone. Maybe the cool materialistic things that a friend might give you, the social clout you might get through them. But you know, the opposite is true too. We should be careful because other times it might be that you perceive yourself as being on the lower economic bracket and you look upon someone in the higher economic bracket with disdain and bitterness, coveting what they have that you feel like you don't have or what they have that you feel like you don't, that you deserve, right? It does, it works both ways. And it's the same heart issue is when we overvalue health, we might look down on somebody, but we might look up at somebody as well with, with a lot of disdain 
because they just got it like we don't got it. And that's just not fair. And who do they think they are? Works both ways. There's all kinds of ways that we can mistreat people if we allow wealth to get a grip on our hearts. The third indictment is this, self-indulgence. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. The imagery here is really strong. These wealthy farmers were living in obscene comfort and luxury, completely oblivious that the day of judgment was coming for them. Misuse of wealth that they had accumulated. They were living these excessively lavish lifestyles that were self-absorbed and self-focused and idolatrous. Here's our warning. Wealth can bring a misalignment of values. See, as wealth grips our hearts, we'll be tempted to place too much value on materialistic gain, modern day comforts and conveniences. And listen, just like misplaced security here, I don't intend to try and tell you or disearn for you how much comfort is too much comfort and how much luxury is too much luxury. How many clothes are too many clothes? How many shoes are too many shoes? I, I don't know. That's, that's for the Holy Spirit in you to help you work through, right? But I know that we should all work to discern that, to pray through these boundaries and ask these questions. Kent Hughes explains, there are times for sumptuous celebration, holidays, birthdays, anniversaries. There are times to feast and lavish our loved ones. But a life of conspicuous consumption, delicate, soft luxury is not Christian. I think this is an especially important warning for us because of where we live, right? We might not feel this way, but we are all rich compared to the rest of the world. So we ought to be careful before we dream about all of the expensive vacations and the luxury and the comfort, some of which are just ridiculous that exists where we are. First Timothy 6, 6 through 9 says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we were brought nothing into this world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Be warned that the desire for wealth can lead us into a misalignment of values. The fourth indictment. Condemning men it says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. What James is referring to here is judicial murder, right? Primarily it's, it's this idea of taking away from someone the means of living, right? So by not paying proper wages, but also by not offering benevolence, James is holding these farmers guilty of murder, in this context, the wealthy landowners controlled the courts as well. That means that the power that the workers had was minimal. When they didn't receive payment, they had no means of opposing these wealthy landowners. What's the warning for us here? The fourth and final warning is this. Wealth can bring misuse of resources. Wealth can bring misuse of resources. You see, if left unchecked, it's easy to get into a pattern in which our wealth can be misallocated in ways that are dishonoring to God. 
this warning of wealth comes with a reminder that our wealth is not our own. We are stewards of God's blessings. Which means if we're not leveraging our houses, our vehicles, our stuff, our finances to invest in what God cares about, then we're out of line as believers. Remember a few chapters ago in James 1, 27, uh, he says that religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, visit the orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. You know, but even more important than the physical needs or the spiritual needs in the city right here around us. Right, the question I would pose is how are you using your resources and financial blessings to proclaim the gospel to unbelievers and to bring baby, baby believers up into spiritual maturity? I'll give you a really easy way. If, if you're a member here, or if you've been a regular attender here and you're not tithing, that's out of line. That's not allocating your resources for kingdom growth. And it's time. And I pray that you'll repent of that today. That's, a, that's, this, that's, the, that's the floor for Christians as far as stewarding your resources. Not the ceiling, right? And, and I just, I want to brag on, on so many people in this church who have held everything that they have with an open hand. People who not only tithe faithfully and generously, but people who have said, hey, I want to provide my, my dinner table for fellowship anytime the church needs it. I, I wanna provide my front porch for fellowship. I wanna pro provide my living room for interviews anytime the church needs that. I wanna provide my pool for pool parties for kids ministry and student ministry. People that have been blessed with second homes and vacation homes have said, I want to provide this home so that people can go have rest and Sabbath and get away from the world. We have so many people, so many of you that have faithfully opened your hands and said, how can I use my resources for the kingdom of God to build that kingdom, not my kingdom? How can we use our blessings to be for the gospel and to be for the city. Imagine what that would look like if we began treating our resources as God's. Jesus made this clear in the parable of the talents. It's Matthew 24, uh, I'm sorry, 25, that, that we're not owners of anything, but we are stewards. That means all of our resources and wealth are really God's resources and wealth. It means we'll all give an account for how we steward it. That's what the parable teaches us. And these warnings come right on the heels of the reminder that we saw last week in James 4.13 that life is a vapor. It's here today, but it's gone tomorrow. Our lives are so minuscule. And if we fail to remember that, what happens is we overinvest in this temporary short-sighted world and we underinvest in what is eternal. Where are we investing? But you know, it also robs us of life when we fail to remember that we live for something far greater. Right here and right now. That doesn't sound quite right, does it? That sounds bad. How, how could it be that restricting the way I spend my money and restricting what I want, how could that 
bring me more joy. So the Bible doesn't offer us warnings about wealth to restrict or ruin all of our fun. It's not about that. It's not about just trying to steal us and rob us of comfort that we deserve. I think James watched his half-brother, Jesus, live in financial poverty, but live with supreme peace. James also would have seen the rich young ruler live in supreme wealth, but live an entire life enslaved to his wealth. What does it look like to be enslaved to wealth? I want to illustrate this with candy. So when my, when my daughter was about two and a half, <clears throat> she uh, had her eyes opened to the beauty of the world of candy. And <clears throat> this change happened in her, right? When she thought if she could only have all the candy all the time, then she would be happy. And that I was just a restriction on her freedom. You know, like if, if I could just have it whenever I want, that would be good. The problem with that is when I said no, you can't have that candy right now. It's 6 a.m. It would completely change her mood. It would dampen her spirit. It would spark her temper. It could turn a whole day, parents, you know this, upside down, right? Into this big meltdown of a no and a, and a bad attitude. And now everybody's upset because she didn't have her candy. And what I, what I would try to explain to her two and a half year old brain in that moment is, is Nora, <clears throat> Honey, do you see that you are enslaved to your desire for candy? She didn't get it. I say, do you know that you're a slave to your desire for candy? You want candy so badly that that desire has enslaved you in a way that it controls your whole day. It changes your attitude. It ruins your hours. It ruins everyone's morning. You're a slave to candy. See, for her, true freedom would have been all the candy all the time. But what I wanted her to see is that true freedom is caring so much more about things that are so much more important that when I said no to candy, she could still have joy and obey dad, not get the candy and live a life that was satisfying to her. That's freedom. That's real freedom. Right now, this illustration is somewhat juvenile. But, but I want you to see the importance of these warnings because how easily our hearts do with wealth what my daughter's heart does with candy. How easily we think, man, if I could just have all the money all the time, all the stuff all the time, right? And then when we don't have it or we can't get it or the accounts are low or we get, we get stressed and we get frustrated and it can wreck our day. Just like you guys just laughed at my daughter for her day getting wrecked about candy. It can wreck us. That's not freedom. The freedom to have and the freedom to spend. James is trying to protect us here from being enslaved to wealth. This isn't about restrictions. This isn't about ruining fun. This is about protecting your heart. Galatians 5.1 says that for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. But we know from 1 Peter that guess what? The devil, your adversary, is roaring around like a lion looking to seek and devour. So be sober-minded. James is here is giving us a sober reality about wealth and the dangers of it. 
And you know, I think poor James is misunderstood. I, I, I think that the book of James, it, it is about faith coming alive through actions and true faith works itself out in the way that we live. That's absolutely true. Faith without works is dead. But when we look to God, when we look to the peace and the security and the comfort and the character of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross for us, what it does is it transforms what we want. It transforms what we value and it transforms what we desire. The things that we invest in are transformed. The way we see people and only then can we live exactly like we want to live. Do what you want to do. Spend what you want to spend. Invest in what you want to invest in and not regret it in a thousand years. When we see in fullness what is currently dimly lit, James is giving us warnings so that we might be free. Don't be enslaved to wealth. 